From Imagine a Place Productions, this is the Design Pop, a dealer designer podcast. I'm your host, Alexandra Cephas, and I'm here to help you build a design career that you love by learning and understanding perspectives from within our industry. Whether you're a furniture enthusiast or just curious about growing and learning more to apply to your own career, I'm glad you're here. Come on, let's get started. As you may know by now, I love feedback. I love hearing from designers about what gets you out of bed every morning and also what are the greatest challenges in your day. A couple of weeks ago, I got this comment from a designer that's going to remain anonymous. Hi, Alexandra. The design team at my dealership is being asked by our manager to specify everything for our projects, including ancillary. Traditionally, the ancillary specs have been done by the salespeople. I don't think that this request will benefit our company or our clients. I can see projects requiring more time than a client will understand, and I worry about burnout and turnover among the designers. It seems like more and more tasks are being added to the designer's plates as the years go by and never with an increase in income to go with it. Do you know what other dealerships are doing to accommodate this? Are designers owning ancillary and everything else, or is this another role in the company. Thanks so much, Alexandra. After I listened to this recording, my heart broke a little bit. And all I could think about is how many things designers have to do. And yes, this is adding even more to their plate, but what do we do about it? I decided that we had to do some exploring and try to get to the bottom of what other people are doing. So this podcast contains two interviews. And I also released a survey on social media and I asked two questions. The questions that I asked were, which best describes the role that is responsible for ancillary product selection? And also inside of your dealership, which role is typically responsible for ancillary specification? Now, before we get into this, I have to just laugh. Earlier this year, I did a poll about dealer stress And it took effort to get 60 people to respond. We got 140 responses to an ancillary survey in one week. I'm blown away by this because if I asked anyone on the street what ancillary furniture is, no one would know. If I asked even a close family member that has known me since I started my design career, they may not know what that means either. So the fact that this is this hot of a topic within this community is incredible. And we'll get into some of the very specific results of this survey in a bit. Let's dive into our first interview with a design leader that I respect very much. Her name is Jody Sorensen. She is actually a remote design lead for a dealership that has two locations in the southern part of the country. I can't wait for you to hear from her about her experiences and leading this team and how they've evolved to accommodate ancillary furniture specification and selection. I have to ask, is that a watercolor behind you? A, no. A, like, Do you know table? what's crazy? Here, I'll show you. Um, I have an AI camera, so I might have to like move my head for it to move with me. So it's like wishbone chairs, but it's a local artist. It's this woman named Kai McDonald, and she's from Minneapolis. I saw her at an Art for Shelter event a couple of years ago, and basically she does a lot of these dystopian universes with furniture. Oh, okay. I totally dig it because how often do you see a painting of commercial furniture? Right. I love it. Thanks. It's awesome. Speaking of ancillary. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. So ancillary. Yes. Um. Just something that you might not know. We have two ancillary specialists now. You do? Yes. Yes. Wow. Because we are just busy enough. And, you know, we've got two markets. And ancillary just gets heavier and heavier on every every year. Yeah, so we have enough to keep two of them busy. The systems designers will still spec some ancillary. I prefer them to only spec ancillary that is in CET. So attention, ancillary manufacturers, get your extension in CET. Um, Or even commercial interiors library or something, right? You have to be represented somewhere, I think, to have that higher visibility. 
Yes. Otherwise, I feel we aren't in their hands specifying things. If we have an ancillary specialist spec something, we will put it in our drawings. We'll find a symbol that's closest to it. Um, but beyond that, I don't want the system center specifying that stuff. Having said that, even if we put ancillary product into the drawings and it comes out in our BOM, there's also a line in the BOM saying PC is responsible for verifying pricing of non-mainline manufacturer products um, and calculate freight and surcharges. Hey, this is Alexandra. I'm going to interrupt this for a minute here to just make sure we're all speaking the same language. When Jody says PC, that means project coordinator. For you on your team, that may mean sales support. That may mean a number of things. We're also going to get real technical here and start talking about things like CET. And as Jody says, project spec. Spec is the new name of project spec. If you don't use spec currently, you may use another SIF engine or SIF reader, as people have been known to say it. So that is the context that we're trying to get across here. I hope that makes sense. Now back to the interview. So kind of just a little disclaimer that we just put a line. like It's basically a, a product line in our ancillary specs. So what are they? What system are they even using then to spec ancillary as an ancillary designer if they're not using CET? Um, so we have one ancillary specialist who does use CET, but she mostly uses it for visuals. Um, and then we have another ancillary specialist who does everything in project spec. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I I shouldn't say it makes sense. It seems like that there are certain trends that yeah. where you are you are not alone. That could be normal. Yes. And the person who uses CET, she mostly uses Project Spec as well. Like I said, the CET is just a visual thing for her. And that's only because of kind of the backwards way she learned how to use CET. Um, she had never used it before this, and she self-taught. And so for that reason alone, it was just easier for her to use it for visuals. And then, um, yeah. So I 100% believe it should be an ancillary specialist who specifies the product and our ancillary specialists will get quotes from vendors because that's all they're doing. Um, however, if it's a giant project, you know, maybe our ancillary specialists will focus more on like the conference rooms that have electrical and things like that, where we need to coordinate stuff with the manufacturer. Whereas if we get an RFP that has just a bunch of, you know, loose furniture, um, a PC can reach out and get quotes for that. Um, but when it comes to alternatives, it's always the ancillary specialist. Salesperson will have an opinion sometimes, um, but for the most part, it's it's the ancillary specialist. Do you feel they have enough oversight on behalf of, obviously, they have a design background, I assume, and so they know the style, the look, like the key features of something that could be similar to another option. But as it relates to margin, what I find is that if it is something that is not from your aligned manufacturer, if this is an open line product, I think the case for salespeople doing it many times relies on the fact that they are trying to control the margin of the deal. So that is something that we, you know, if it is a very budget conscious project, um, we find out not even necessarily what the margin is because we can compare net. Um, you know, so if we're trying to compare two chairs and one really fits the look, and one kind of fits the look, but it's less expensive, you know, then we kind of made, make a judgment call. If it's really close, sometimes we'll put both in and the salesperson can decide if they want to toss one out or leave them both in. Mm -hmm. Is that kind of what you mean? I don't know a better way to say it, but when you have that technical designer that is also doing ancillary, generally what I find is that they're very overwhelmed with the workload. Therefore, they're not paying as much attention to the details like the margin. They're just like, hey, it looks like it. I think it's going to be cheaper, so we're going to do this. But they may not be asking the hard questions of, but what is the discount on both? Or what are the other additional incentives that that manufacturer has? Maybe they don't have time to check with a rep. So just reacting versus being very proactive about that. And that could cause deeper margin erosion versus really hyper-focusing on, hey, this chair could be done in the following three different ways. And I'm going to be a steward of our business and the desires of our client because I have the time to do so. 100% agree. That's one argument 
for not me not wanting the systems designers doing the ancillary specification. Um, the other being, just to kind of elaborate on being spread too thin, we are concentrating on screws, nuts, bolts, brackets, thousands of them, you know, mm-hmm. and that's on us. So to take time to get a freight quote, just it just doesn't gel well together in my opinion. Um, so I would like the systems designers to stay in that world. And I want to have ancillary specialists who can do the other. Um, but there are going to be times when our ancillary specialists are busy and the salesperson might say, you know, use XYZ chair, we'll put it in the drawing, but then we always have the disclaimer that pricing needs to be verified, you know? And the other thing about the ancillary designers is, um, they have, really strong relationships with all the reps. We do as well. We sit in the meetings, but we don't deal with them day in and day out like the ancillary specialists. So when you build that relationship, um, that comes with better discounting, faster quotes, um, you know, so I just, I feel like that's really good too. What do you believe the skill set should be for an ancillary designer versus what would you look for with your systems designer by comparison? With a systems designer, I look for experience. Um, Obviously, whatever manufacturer they have experience with as well. Um, I want to see like examples of their installation documents. I want to see examples of their renderings, you know, things like that. With an ancillary specialist, it's harder to gauge. For me, I feel like I would want an ancillary specialist to be in the market so that they can build those relationships. I feel like that is just a really important thing. Would I take somebody who's new to the industry, who seemed to have a flair for it? It's a total just gut reaction when I meet with this person, where I think that they're outgoing enough that they're going to make those connections. They're outgoing enough that they can meet with the client and have finished meetings and product selection meetings. I don't know that, and I'm not a great trainer on ancillary, you know, Okay. I'm going to put both of us in a similar generation category here. When we started our careers, it was here, sell your line manufacturer, maybe 10 others. Now we're in the world of, we don't know what's going to happen next. There are some dealers who are telling me they are selling not only contract interior furnishings, but also residential goods and go beyond ancillary. What about accessories, right? There's a lot out there that we can do that doesn't have to be sold with a rating on it because it is an accessory that's going to sit on a shelf and it just has to look pretty. So along those lines, I I don't know that I would be great either in helping train someone up for that style of work. I think it's really hard to do that. And that's why I'm curious because I've heard of dealers who would say, we're taking somebody fresh out of college because this is a great foray into this world to see if they like it or not. But I would argue that I think with that approach, you're right, personality is really key here because if you are not a people person naturally, and maybe at the age of 22 years old, you don't know yet what your strengths are, how do you put someone in that position to be like, hey, call your local XYZ reps, coordinate all of this, also have lunch with them, get to know them, who do you bond with, what is their value proposition, and to tee that up correctly? I don't, I don't know if that portion of it is necessarily entry level. No, agreed. I think you could have an entry-level person if you already have somebody in place and they can shadow them and then, you know, grow on their own. Um, If I didn't have two ancillary specialists and I needed to start from the beginning, because we are in two markets, we're newer in one market than the other. And I was looking for an ancillary specialist in that market. And I wouldn't look at anybody who didn't have experience. I wouldn't look at anybody who didn't have relationships already. Mm -hmm. Um, Sounds kind of unfair, but it just... It just wouldn't have been a good fit. Um, I wouldn't have been able to give them the training they deserved and just probably wouldn't have been able to set them up for success. Um, however, if there was two people in the same market and they could shadow, great. But I just, yeah, it's it's definitely a different personality type, I feel, for sure. I mean, you've got um, specifiers of systems furniture who are so analytical and so like Tetris, you know, they want to make things fit like Tetris. And then you've got 
the ancillary specialists who might be, you know. That's the whole dichotomy. Yeah, that's what I'm finding is that there, I think the true clash is that, yes, we do have dealer leaders who are saying, we want design to do this. We want sales to do this and kind of, you know, having the mandates. That's all fine. That exists. Hopefully there's a business case behind those decisions, right? But there's also this other portion of technical designers or systems designers many times maybe could desire doing ancillary because they feel that it's a creative outlet versus others may say, no, I don't like this. I like the technical side of it. Therefore, it is not in my job description to be doing ancillary specification and selection. And I think that's the other clash here. And that's where a lot of this uprising of emotion is coming from in the design community. Agreed. And I think for a long time, because we are in the same generation of, you know, when I started in my career, all the information came from the salesperson. I was basically a CAD jockey in a specifier. And then as things change, you know, you get involved more with the clients and then you get involved more with the ancillary and you're just more a part of what's happening. Everywhere I've worked, there's been designers who have no desire to leave their desk. They have no desire to leave CET or CAD or whatever. Then there's other designers who are bored to death and they want to go to finished meetings and they want to be a part of that, I think. Um, And you, you can't, expect somebody who doesn't want to leave their desk and who doesn't want to leave CET if they're really good at what they do to all of a sudden just be a different personality type and to be successful at something that they never even signed up for. I used to love selecting finishes and doing, you know, the rep meetings and understanding competitive products. But the idea then of trying to actually spec it correctly was terrifying. It's daunting. That fear of getting it wrong for me was very hard to push beyond. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, even after 20 plus years of experience, if our ancillary designers are out and I need to step in and help, I am lost. You know, there are some price guides that are excellent, some price guides that are impossible to find, impossible to read. And when they're not in CET or Project Spag, it's even that much harder. Yeah, for so sure. I. It takes a special person for sure. So one last question for you on this. I am curious if your process looks different, if we are talking about ancillary selection or ancillary specification, because I think those are two very different things that many times we don't define. And I'm curious how you and your team would jive with either one differently. Yes. So I mean, as we know, specification means you will get the price guide and you will get the part numbers and the finish codes and and whatnot. Um, Whereas selection, you can look at a space and meet with a client and make recommendations on products. Any of our designers can do that. Um, The designers who can do that, can they also specify that stuff properly? Probably not. However, um, like kind of thinking more of the selection of you know, the salesperson is really a person who has a relationship with the client and they also have relationships with vendors. So oftentimes salespeople already know when they get this project, I want you to use this chair, this manufacturer, this, 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 and this. And then we can attempt to specify it, you know, in CET. Um, So we didn't make the selection. We're attempting specifying it, but we're putting the disclaimer of you need to verify this is what you wanted and everything that I've given you is correct. I know it's weird because I view it almost as the opposite of, to me, selection is like the vendor relationship side of trying to determine, okay, here is this one chair. What are the lookalikes to this? And then- So alternatives. Yeah. Almost the alternatives to me, like that is part of that selection process. And sometimes the selection might be an A&D firm saying, hey, this is 50% baked. Can you come up with what the alternatives are? Or, hey, we just need something. Here's the style we're looking for. Go, right? So it could be almost limitless options versus to me, the specification part of it is like the A&D firm has it 100% baked. You just have to verify if it's correct and then actually enter it into an orderable format to some degree, right? Is that, are we in alignment on that? Yes, for sure. I was not really thinking about, I was thinking like internally, I wasn't thinking about, you know, um, design firms or RFPs. Um, for sure. When we have, so, okay, 
There could be seven different ways this enters the business. I think that's where the complexity is, is trying to figure out who it goes to in which scenario. Yes. And a really good example is our two ancillary specialists are very different. We have one who's great at specifications and we have one who's great at alternatives and selections. If we get an RFP where everything is spelled out and they say no alternatives, it's a no-brainer that it's going to go to this ancillary specialist. If we get one that's loosey-goosey or there's really expensive stuff with long lead times and we know it doesn't fit their budget or their schedule, we get the other ancillary specialist involved. Um, that's the other thing about this type of ancillary specialist. They have such a capacity to hold. They can look at you. I can text them, you know, like even when she was. This wants- is the rare unicorn. You and I both have a mutual acquaintance that has been able to do this over the years where they can look at one chair and go, okay, yep, I know of OFS, Stylex. And like they just like list it off and they normally can list them in the order of price and they can tell you off the top of their head what the physical differences are in that item. I mean, Jody, I, I don't even know how you train. That's a brain capacity. That's not a training situation. And that person that we're talking about, I have found her count- counterparts. Yes, very exciting. Let's that. be clear. There are like 10 people in the world that maybe have that. Not only brain capacity, but interest level. Yes, true furniture nerd. I'm so thankful for that interview and honest opinion that came from a design leader who is willing to share with all of us. And hopefully there are many nuggets in there that you can pick up and use within your own teams. I also wanted to explore this topic, though, with someone who sees and works with a lot of teams across the country. And that individual is Abby Leopold. She is out of Chicago, but does work across the country. She is literally a translator as it relates to ancillary for A&D selection and specification. She also is a dealer advocate as to how they can succeed with ancillary, whether it be in hiring her, improving their processes and beyond. And so she sees a lot of people. And I thought it'd be really interesting to talk to her about her experiences. Abby is quite fearless in her approach. She is not shy in expressing her feelings on where we have these holes in the industry, where there's opportunity to fill and what we need to do to improve process. The design community doesn't want to deal with it. And the sales community only wants to be a part of the ancillary specification if they can make money on it and they have a buddy who's a rep who will do most of the work for them. You know, if you look at a lot of salespeople, they have a relationship with a rep, with a lot of lines, and they work deals. And so many of the products are similar enough. Why wouldn't you do it that way? Make more money. You have one butt to kick. Your designer doesn't want to kill themselves. You know, it's... What are you hearing about that creative energy though? Because that's something that I continue to hear about is that some dealer designers don't want to do it because they don't view it as creative. They view it as not their job title. Then you have others who want to do it because they feel that it is a creative outlet. I don't know which is right or wrong, but what are your observations? I think that it's totally dependent on your designer. If a designer just wants to spec workstations, private offices, their mainline stuff, do their job, get it done, you know, there are phenomenal designers who are technical designers, and that is what they do. And they come in at 8 a.m. and they leave at 5 p.m. and they make sure the specs are right. And quite frankly, those specs are hard specs. They're really hard. (laughs) Why would they waste energy on ancillary? But then you have other designers who are at dealers and it is their only creative outlet because dear God, like panel after panel after panel, workstation after workstation after workstation, you know, that's boring for a designer who wants to be creative. But then if you have that designer, sometimes the salespeople get really frustrated with them. Because what happens is those designers want it to look beautiful and they're not thinking about pricing. 
mm-hmm. which, yeah, that's their job. So those designers in my eyes tend to leave dealerships faster. They're like, this this is boring. This is not for me. So then you do have these designers who are great technical designers and they don't want to do ancillary. And that's a majority of them. So, and they're good at their jobs. So creative energy with designers at dealers, I tend to see just going down. You know, it's, I want to do my job. I want to do it well. It's stressful enough as is. Yeah. You said something very important about the uh, aligned manufacturer's specification. Yes. That's something they do every single day. So as much as it's difficult, the baseline knowledge of those products is very well understood. Mm -hmm. But as it relates to the million and a half open lines that have to be considered, that is something very different. Yeah. And that leads to additional challenges for people who don't have, I say there's those rare unicorns. I think you're actually one of them. Someone recently referred to you as the ancillary queen. I believe you are the ancillary queen. So, you know, but there are those, I say there's like a couple rare unicorns out there that can look at one product and go, here are, you know, 70 other products that look similar to it. Which one do you want? But then it does come down to the lens of, okay, if you can have the same fabric on all of them, maybe it's all graded in, or maybe it's all pre-approved on all of them. The look and style of these products are all similar. It comes down to the pricing and then that becomes a salesperson's Mm -hmm. dilemma. Mm -hmm. It's a very interesting subdivision. (laughs) Well, and the salesperson wants to get it done. You know, they're not there to be creative. They are there to look at the design intent and kind of see it through, but honestly, just get it done. I want to make some money. I want it to be there on time. And it is what it is. So they push ancillary to the end. And I see mm-hmm. that that is my biggest pet peeve because you can't, you got to do it first. So in a perfect world, what does the process look like to you? In a perfect world, since I am the queen of ancillary. Correct. Uh, <laughs> so you can tell everybody what to do because you are the queen of ancillary. Can I tell my family <laughs> that? Like, no, I'm not a doctor or a lawyer and I don't have, but I am the queen of ancillary. Okay. Correct. Um, so uh, the perfect process is you have somebody focused on ancillary. That is their job. They work in alignment with the salespeople. And that person's job is to know the millions of open lines. Because it's the designer's job to know the main line. They know it like the back of their hand. They go to trainings. The salesperson also goes to trainings on those things. The ancillary person needs to know the open lines. And they need to know pricing and lead times. And they need to know how it works. They need to know graded in textiles versus COMs and what that does. Not only to pricing, but to lead times. And that person sits down in conjunction with the salesperson and the design firm and interprets the design. And they go through and they look at it and in their heads, they start saying, okay, well, this can be this, this can be this, this can be this. And you have to be quick on your feet and be able to discuss design with the designer. Because as soon as you are unable to interpret their renderings, they write you off. They don't want to talk to you and they should, you know, you're just another salesperson. But if you can talk their language and say, what are your must-haves? That's how I always start. What are your must-haves? I really want this textile on this sofa in the reception station. It's like, okay, that we can do. In order to do that, all of your conference tables need to change. Do those conference tables need to go or need to be polished aluminum? No. Okay, so they can be painted silver? Yeah. Well, that's going to save you a ton of money. And then you can get that sofa and you can get some of these other little gems that you want. You know, Mm -hmm. but you have to speak their language. And then you got to look at the salesperson and you have to talk numbers, you know? okay, what is, what did you bid? What do they think they're going to be spending? They think they're going to be spending $25 a square foot. Okay. 
well, don't propose product that costs $45 a square foot, you know? Mm-hmm. So then you come back with your first round of budget and you sit down with the designer again without the salesperson and you go through that and see what they approve and what they don't. You know, it's mm-hmm. not that hard. You know, if well, but what you're describing is that you have to actually ask really hard questions about priorities and about aesthetic priorities, correct? About goals, and then almost become that intermediary between all parties on behalf of budget, right? And that is actually a challenging job. I would argue that this is where, when I refer to these, these rare unicorns, the reason they're rare is because they are okay asking the hard questions. They are okay kind of creating this almost like consortium for a positive result for the project. And many times, traditionally in dealerships, we have put designers behind a closed door and said, here, do your CAD work, not we want to enable you to have these customer relationships. And so now that we're at a place where we need them to be more forward-facing, are they trained adequately in the art of asking questions and of being that intermediary and then feeling comfortable standing up to the salesperson and saying, hey, we're going to make more money on this product, but we're going to make less here in order to hit the budgetary goals and the, you know, the margin goals that we have as a company. You're asking way too much of a designer. That's not their job. <laughs> like, it's just not. It, you need somebody who's focused on it. Any dealer that says otherwise is wrong. If they think their designer can sit and talk through all of that, and get their specifications right on their workstations and their private offices, they're wrong. They're asking way too much. So it's it's not the designer's job. I'm sorry. So I appreciate your thoughts on that. I have a question for you of how did you become the ancillary queen? So I <laughs> I became the ancillary queen. And it kind of parlays into exactly what you're talking about. In the 08 recession, uh, principals were held at firms and then they laid off all the intermediate people. When the recession kind of started to slow down, economy was boosted back up, they hired kids out of school. They were cheap. Um, No one taught them how to specify furniture. So you had all of these young designers coming in and handing off Pinterest boards to the designers at dealerships. And they were like, well, that's, that's the furniture spec. And the designers were like, you're out of your mind. Like, what, what am I doing with this? And the salespeople would smile and they'd be like, okay, well, we'll figure it out. And they just started doing this over and over and over again. And it got to the point where a lot of dealers tried to jump the design firms and cut them completely out of the process, which did not work well. Um, The designers then on the projects that were big would not choose those dealerships because they had a bad reputation. So how I got my job was basically to... (laughs) make dealers look good again in the eyes of design firms. Go and talk to the designers. Make them know that we understand them. I'm a salesperson, but I went to design school. I will tell people over and over again, I am a salesperson. I am a project manager. I can design. Should I? No. (laughs) There's people who are way better at it, but I can't interpret it. And that was my job. That is what I did. I started interpreting designs and I very politely then handed them to the designer and the coordinator at the dealership and said, you're doing this. And I will never forget one time I had the CEO. He was like, I just, I want to knock it out. I was like, what? He's like, I want to do the whole project today. I was like, I was new. I was like, okay, I, I don't have any other meetings. I can do that. You want to do it? He was like, yeah. And so I specified the entire office 
And I had my budget. It was all ready. I had the reps bringing in samples. He, like, it was amazing. I got in a ton of trouble from my boss. He was like, you can never do that again. And I was like, but it's done. And it was fine. But I handed over the budget to the coordinator and she caught my boss walking past. She was like, what GP do I put on it? And he was like, I don't know. Uh, Let's start with a 15 and see where it works out. And I was across the room and I go, what? No, 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 no. And he was like, what? And I was like, every single line has a different GP and it works out to an 18. You keep it there. Like, do not change those sale prices. And he was like, why? I was like, because they wanted certain things. So that sofa she wanted in the reception has a two GP. Your stackers, they have a 45. Keep it. It levels out, right? Yeah. Well, and in order for it to be successful, the dealer has to make money. Otherwise, you can't deliver successful service on the front or back end. So, you know, I think people really believe that our margins are excessive in general. And they're not, but there are those times where you have to give a little in order to be able to then deliver successfully. And I think a customer will understand that. And when they come back to order again, the price may be different. I think a lot of dealers feel like the price has to be consistent today as well as three years from now. Truth is everything changes. And right now everything's changing at an exponential rate. So guess what? The cost is never going to be the cost again. Look at eggs. That's what I always tell people. I'm like, go to the freaking grocery store. (laughs) Like, Some days I pay $5 for eggs. Other days I paid nine. It is what it is. Yeah. Like, are you going to a different grocery store to go and get the eggs? If you do, awesome. You have nothing better to do. Otherwise, you buy the freaking eggs because you need eggs that day. And you suck it up and you, you figure it out. And you hope that farmer is turning a profit because if they don't turn a profit, they probably have unhealthy chickens and you don't want those eggs anyways. Correct. And I'm sorry. I work with dealers all over the nation, everywhere. I promise you, not one has extreme margins. Like, they're surviving on very low margins. Sometimes to the point where, I mean, I do a lot of price checking for end users. Mm -hmm. And that's also something I always laugh at. They're like, you don't know our pricing. I'm like, I do. (laughs) Let's move on from that. Um, No, they are surviving on low margins. And I don't know how they're doing it. And people are very unhappy because of it. And the only thing that can make it better is process. You know, get your process going more efficiently. Yeah. And one of those things is ancillary. Get somebody who can specify, sell ancillary and make a profit on it. What is the best background for someone to be one of these rare ancillary unicorns, because I have seen many different models where there will be someone who maybe is a project coordinator at a dealership. Mm -hmm. And so therefore they already have relationships with reps. They maybe have an innate design desire to be more of a designer, but they don't have a degree. And so they dabble and they are able to absorb a lot more because they have the time and the interest. They are the others who are, maybe fresh out of college, but they have great people skills um, and have a desire for it. I've heard of others who are like designers who, again, just want this creative outlet. What is, what's the perfect thing here, Abby? And do they have to be NCIDQ certified? Like that's really what I want to know. No, I don't have an NCIDQ. I don't know about you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not NCIDQ. I'm not, I've never been state certified. Just putting it out there. (laughs) I'm certified by the state for other things, but not interior design. No. Um, <laughs> businesswoman, that's it. Um, no, they need to be the number one thing, trustworthy. They have to be able to carry a conversation and they have to be trustworthy. Designers don't want to admit anywhere in this country, anywhere across the world, they don't have the right answer. It makes them feel inferior. And especially to a dealer. Like, can you imagine having to say, oh, I don't know the difference between this veneer or that veneer or. You're saying an A&D designer. Correct. Yeah. Um, They have to be trustworthy. They have to have good people skills. 
And I've had more designers give me projects, A&D designers give me projects based on that. I'll mm-hmm. get random calls out of the blue. I cannot tell you what I'm doing. I cannot tell you you're going to get it. I need you to answer this question for me. Okay, go. Yes, Halcon is more expensive than Coles. <laughs> like, that was your question? Yes. Okay. Bye. <laughs> how often are you on how often are you interpreting things on behalf of let's say an A and D firm versus being more on the dealer advocacy side? I'm always on the dealer advocacy side. I am a dealer champion every single day. And the dealers I work with will either say absolutely or they'll say not always. And <laughs> <laughs> It is touchy business here because I'm sure you are translating on behalf of many different designer backgrounds and designer types, um, as well as end user desires and beyond. I want the project to look good. I want it to get done. I want the client to be happy. And I want the dealer to make money. And if somebody has a different goal than that, they shouldn't be in this business. So I get very passionate about specification because if I see somebody bidding a conference table for under 2000 and then they're taking a client on a showroom tour and showing them $50,000 conference tables, I get very upset. Well, it just shows that either there's a lack of knowledge from the salesperson or they are trying really hard to impress, but they're not impressing with capability. They are impressing with furniture alone, and that's going to set the unrealistic idea for that customer of what they're actually going to receive. Correct. But it all goes back to process. You know, you want a more profitable dealership. It's not by selling a more expensive piece of furniture with a higher margin. It's Mm -hmm. about delivering what you said you could efficiently. I think it was a year ago. I was posting something on social media about ancillary and yourself, Amanda Schneider, and I all started a group text chain about the fact that ancillary is not even a relevant term anymore. And in fact, it sucks in general. Okay, so if you were going to call it anything, what would you call it since you are the queen of ancillary and you can really dictate exactly what this is? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I I just, I hate the word ancillary. Ancillary means not necessary. And I think that is what drives me the most crazy is it's the furniture that makes a space sing. Is it necessary? No. Do you want to sit at your workstation all day long? No. You know, it's what reflects the company's culture. Mm -hmm. And if you don't think that's necessary, then your space is just that. It's space. You know, and nobody just wants to be in some place that's icky. I don't know that ancillary is the right. It's like the default name. It's just the default. It's horrible. I remember. It's status quo, Abby. (laughs) I'm the ancillary queen. I'm the queen of not necessary. (laughs) I don't know what to say here. It's but the thing is, it is necessary, right? I mean, necessary. It should be the thing that just want these gorgeous curated spaces, and they can't get to that without the ancillary. No, you absolutely can't. And even then, I would argue that you also need decor. That's the other part of this is I think 10 years ago, how many reps would come around and be like, oh, we have these, you know, decor packages that you can buy and this, that, how many people are selling those now? I have not heard of that in the longest time. Now it's, I have seen dealers who are like, we have a team of people who will go to crate and barrel room and board restoration hardware and pick up like little accessories and items for you. I don't know that many are doing it, but I have seen it occasionally. Yeah. I get hired to do it and pretend I work for the dealer quite often. Um, because I will tell you that's a totally separate podcast. How that business model works is <laughs> difficult. And that's why dealers don't want to touch it. And I don't blame them. Um, 
I, however, am a masochist and ancillary got too easy. So I decided to go into that world too. You figured out a way to diversify, to create income for yourself, for the dealer, and also really deliver on these huge needs that the end users have that maybe they don't even know that they have until they move in and go, okay, great. We purchased that shelf and we don't even know what goes on it. More often than not, I get called in to look at spaces and then they're like, uh, we have this and it looks like crap and we spent a ton of money, but we're willing to yeah. spend more money so that it doesn't look like this. I hate to equate residential and commercial, but there are so many of these parallels that exist of, you know, you have to fill a space with what you desire to be there on day one. Otherwise what happens? So yeah, you're right. This is a whole nother podcast for another time, but. But I will say to your point right there, that is the old school thought process. Residential and commercial should not be related. Not anymore. They have to be. Mm -hmm. Because if your commercial space does not reflect a residential setting where people have been post-COVID, they're not going to want to be there. So. Yeah, I agree. Abby, I even think of before COVID. I oh, mean, 100%. as a salesperson, I remember having a, and this is like way before COVID. I remember a startup coming to me and saying, you've priced things out. We love the applications, but frankly, we don't even know if we're going to be in business in a year. Can you just help us and like go and pick up some Ikea Mark it up. We don't even care, but you have to install it because we don't have the staff to do it. We don't want the liability. Can you just do it for us? And I remember going to my boss and saying, is this cool? I understand this isn't our core business, but frankly, there's money in, in this. Why wouldn't we do it? And so I did. And Those I, are my favorite clients. <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, and I hate to admit that publicly because I know some people may have a lot of things to say about it, but that was probably 10 years ago. Now you look at, again, what exactly what you're saying about this emotive space where you walk in and you're like, this is comfortable enough that I'm okay leaving my sweatpants at home and maybe putting on a pair of jeans and going to the office because this equally feels comfortable and opens me up for better dialogue and conversation with my coworkers than I can have digitally. So again, the old school thought processes need to go away. You know, yeah. residential and commercial can coexist. Startups who just want you to get it done is a great client. Honestly, and easy and they're happy and they just want it done. Mark it up. Well, and Abby, you just look at it and, and think, you know, you and I are both business owners. Yeah. I understand what it's like to work out of a chair for the first year I was in business. I mean, I literally worked out of a crate and barrel lounge chair, I think, for about a year before all of a sudden I called OFS and I'm like, I need help. Um, I think I need a better office. Can you help me with this? As a startup, you really don't know. You and don't you're trying know. to limit your cost and your exposure. So how many businesses now are homegrown? We're not alone. And it's not just about your main line. It is not just... This is what we sell and this is how we sell and this is why we sell. If your true thought process, again, goes back to ensuring the design is taken care of, things come in on time and on budget, and you make a beautiful space. If those three things are not your goal, get out of the business. And <laughs> I'm serious. Like, Well, no, I know you are. I just laugh because I, I think of... Well, you and I both have very different backgrounds as far as you know, the services that we have provided while working at dealerships. And I completely agree with you because I feel like as a consultant the last almost six years, that's one thing that I continue to come up against is I don't know that many dealers actually understand all the time where they're profitable um, because they're not appropriately measuring things like design time. So then there are these other assumptions, as we've discussed, like how do you pay for an ancillary specialist to be on staff? Well, a lot of that is that you're like, hey, yeah, we turned a profit last year. Yay, our installed margin is where it should be. But if you're not valuing design, how do you really know the rest of the metrics? Therefore, then how can you consider these new thoughts versus staying in that box of the old school thinking? Right. It all goes down to process. And yeah, the you're right. old process doesn't work. Because the old ways are not what you're doing anymore. So mm -hmm. become efficient. You'll make more money. People will be happier. And users will be happier. Designers will be happier. And you're making more money. 
Like Abby, I'm feeling a course coming on here. So you know, maybe we need to start thinking about a design pop course for ancillary specifiers led by Abby on the design pop. I'm down. Yeah, like here's your process. Here you go. Let's do this thing. I'm just so sick of seeing it done incorrectly. Like I used to look at it as like, why would I tell anybody my secret sauce? Now I'm like, yeah. Here's the recipe. Go. Well, it becomes a capacity issue. And again, I know both of us face this, but at some point, I really believe we all do better when we all do better. I've said that now in a couple podcast episodes, like people are going to be sick of me even saying that at this point. If you're doing better and if you are educating other people on what better looks like, it means that yes, you may capture less business, but you personally can't also work with every dealer across the country. I try. So how do we spread these good vibes? Because <laughs> even those good vibes might make it so that somebody else creates an even more superior process to what you believe. And then you can also learn from them. And we're all like continuing to challenge and just do better. Right. Well, and I tell people that constantly too. They're just like, well, I just want you to work with me. And I'm like, I'm more efficient if I'm working with more people because I'm seeing things out in LA that you don't see over here in Ohio, you know? Yeah. So you're getting more of me and more from me if you allow me to work with other people. And what you said about making everybody better, it's true. Like I'm even, I feel like a dinosaur now. Like when you're like, <laughs> go learn CET. I'm like, no can't teach an old dog new tricks. I will tell you that you can because I do it all the time. In fact, there is one sales rep who is in his late 60s who I trained. And frankly, he is now my poster child for he can do it. What I would say is the questions are different. Yeah, You know, you, it takes longer for you to think about it because you know what your process is and you're trying to do a direct translation versus being forward thinking. You can learn it. But again, where are you most effective? Are you most effective using CET or are you most effective staying within the process that you believe in, but knowing enough about CET and the other technologies that exist out there to be able to coach the dealers through, hey, here's what I, I might not do it this way, but here's the way I think it could work for you, knowing that this is the technology that you are already using. Yeah. And I am, I'm down for that collaboration for sure. Not yeah. here yet, dinosaur, but yeah, I think it's. I know that there's better ways to do things and I would love to learn it so that I can then take that, manipulate it and spin it for ancillary process improvement Yes, across the board. Because unfortunately yep. not everyone is as obsessed with ancillary furniture as I am. So... <laughs> and I am not, but that's why I very much appreciate all of these perspectives and it's excellent to talk to you about it. I think that we can do better by exposing it and hopefully talking about it. But I do think that going back to your 2010 comment, we're going to be right back there with, okay, great. So if it means better process, how do we educate from the top down to do better? What is that sweet spot for an A&D to dealer handoff? What does it look like to deliver a successful project? There are all these other themes that have to continue to be uncovered. And I'm just glad that we can have this dialogue and maybe kick off a little bit of that outside of each dealer you know, location, having that discussion. And maybe this will spread and everyone can continue to be better. I love it because I love this industry. I love the people that I've met in this industry. It needs to survive we just need to do better and think differently. I want to see the industry survive, but I want to see it thrive. I believe that dealers need to be prioritizing their services over their furniture margins in today's world. But in order for all of that to happen, that means we have to keep evolving. We can't stop. We can't look at status quo. We can only look forward. Correct. And thrive is the right word. I'm so thankful for both of these ladies to share their perspectives in these interviews. It's really hard to be recorded. It's hard to hear your own voice. And I'm so thankful they were willing to put themselves out there. The only piece that I really struggle with here is that these are only two perspectives. And yes, Abby sees a lot. And I can't discount the incredible knowledge of a design leader who has so much to share 
based on real life experience, living in it all day, every day. But these are still two perspectives. And so one of the big things that I continue to think about is where is that breakoff in size of dealership where an ancillary specialist just makes sense? Is it that if you have under 10 designers, it's not worth it, but over 10, maybe the volume of your business is so big and you're doing so much more ancillary that you absolutely have to have these roles? I don't know that we've defined that. And I can say that Unfortunately, the survey did not ask ahead of time for what size is your dealership before the responses were given to the two questions that we asked. If I could go back in time, I would definitely reframe this survey to encapsulate that whole question of what is the size of your dealership, either based on number of designers or overall sales volume. But let's work with what we have here. Let's get into these results of the 140 responses that we got to the first question on which role is responsible for ancillary product selection? The highest response that we got was that 65% is handled by dealer designers. In second place, it was that 19% is handled by A&D firms. The other responses were pretty negligible here, just a couple percentage points here or there. The second question was inside of your dealership, which role is typically responsible for ancillary specification? That response is that 59% dealer designers are responsible for all furniture specification. Then, <laughs> this is where it gets really very interesting. This was a big tie between a dedicated ancillary designer a salesperson, and sales support in the form of a project coordinator or any type of role in that realm, all tied for 6%. So that leaves a very large percentage of 23% said that it's a combination effort. Now, whenever I had somebody check the box to say it's a combination effort, I simply had a blank that said, please explain below. We had way more than 23% percent respond below. 78 people wrote in responses to follow up on their answers. So many people want to have a voice on this. I'm in total awe. The challenge is, what do I do with 78 responses? I can't read them all on a podcast. So I decided to use modern technology. I threw all 78 responses into chat GPT to find the common answers or the common themes within. The first one was pretty ridiculous, if I'm honest. Um, the first response or first commonality that ChatGPT found is that many dealerships have ancillary-specific teams or designers who handle ancillary specifications. However, there are still general designers who deal with both systems and ancillary specifications, especially if the ancillary team is overloaded. Okay, great. I think we have that part covered. There was also a couple of comments here about A&D firm involvement. One was that a significant number of projects get specific specifications from an A&D firm. But if there is not an A&D firm involved or an alternate package is needed, the dealership may handle those specifications themselves. While there's a clear division of responsibility between dealer designers, sales, A&D, in other instances, the responsibility may shift based on project needs, size, or the specific relationships with vendors. Again, I think we could all pretty much anticipate that. It is kind of good to have a little bit of affirmation, though, that we're not going crazy throughout this process. There were other things that I found um, in outcomes that were pretty obvious, like that managing budgets is a reoccurring theme in the responses. Since the dealership handles pricing, some believe that they are better positioned to provide options within a client's budget rather than continuously revising based on external inputs. Where for me, I started to nerd out a little bit is that ChatGPT pulled out one specific bullet point, tools and efficiency concerns. They state that specifying ancillary products is often described as time-consuming. Some designers wish for better tools or software to simplify the process. Issues with symbols and rendering tools frequently arise, with some indicating a preference for a specific software or expressing frustration with existing tools. I think we can all agree that we could do better here and that some manufacturers have released tools on their own behalf, but that they're really 
is not one simple way to handle the drama or dilemma around ancillary. I talked with two people who mentioned CET very specifically. They also know that I work with CET a lot, but I can say that there are many dealer teams that I work with that are simply using a spreadsheet to solve for ancillary. There are others who will say they're only going to use spec or worksheet and they don't touch CET because it's too complicated or it doesn't give them what they need. There are others that totally will rely on manufacturers reps to assist because the software doesn't exist or they are looking for specific renderings that they don't believe they can produce in-house. This is such a varied issue and topic that this could be its own podcast in itself discussing the tools and efficiency concerns, but that's not what our designer had asked us to do in this specific podcast. The last two points that I want to make that also came back from ChatGPT are around the debate on responsibility. A common point of contention is determining who should be responsible for ancillary specification, the design team or the sales team. This debate seems to vary from dealership to dealership. Okay, yeah, shocker, we know that. (laughs) That's exactly what we're here to discuss. But then it goes on to say that there is a sentiment that when the designer handles the entire specification process for a project, including ancillary, that they should feel more ownership and more engaged. This ownership can drive better performance and accuracy overall. (sighs) Okay, I know that the reason that we're here is because someone sent me a voicemail about this problem that they are facing. And this is pretty much the opposite of what they just said. I'd love to crack a joke here about how maybe AI isn't perfect, but (laughs) the truth is I know that it really found the median of those survey results. And some people may feel that it does help them to have ownership over the whole project. And I'm very proud of those people that are able to do that. In previous podcasts, you've heard me mention that we need to be hyper-focusing on the superpowers of the designer and really putting a lot of that ownership on management to be able to ask their team about what validates them. But another trend that I've noticed is that even when asked, Sometimes designers are not fabulous at self-advocation. It's very easy to advocate on behalf of the entire team. As an example, I've heard designers say, I don't think it's a benefit for our team to own ancillary because, and then insert reason here. Instead of saying, if I'm going to personally do ancillary, I don't feel that it's leading with my own best foot forward. And here's the reason. And maybe you do this. I know some people naturally do it. Many don't. But I feel that as it relates to our dealer culture, there are so many times that designers just keep taking on everything that's thrown on them because that's in the job description. But now as the role continues to grow, it's not just on the leaders in the organization. It's also on those designers to also say, hey, maybe this isn't the best way forward for me. As an example for myself, I can say that if someone said, hey, you're going to do a reconfigure, um, I would probably curl up in a corner and cry for a while first. And then, yeah, I'd go and self-advocate after. (laughs) But I would probably mope a little bit because it's just not my thing. And I've been very blessed to have leaders in the past who recognize that within me, this is not the best use of my time, let's say. And I also know that there have been designers around me who have probably been really annoyed because maybe I'm getting what is deemed um, a cool project because I get to do live design or work on typical development because that is what's the best use of my time. I can get it done really fast. I thrive on it. I'm energized by it and I'm fueled for the next day. But the person next to me, there might be that technical person that just does an absolutely fabulous job as it relates to technical specification who thrives on reconfigures because for them, it's a really fun puzzle that they get to put together. We all know it is still stressful, but it might be something that fuels them to the next day. So again, I think it is this fine balance between both. There are This does complicate management, but it also requires that you raise your hand and say what's your best. If you are someone who does not want to do ancillary, like the person who sent me the voicemail, please raise your hand and please don't take dramatic action until you do raise your hand and say, hey, this is not the best use of my time and give them time. Give leaders time to adjust. If you feel that actions have not been taken after a particular amount of time, maybe check in one last time. And then if you need to move on, that's maybe what you need to do. 
But I would please, please, please raise your hand as much as you can before then and give everyone the benefit of the doubt. Because maybe what the leaders have been hearing is that you are advocating on behalf of your team and not on behalf of you as an individual. One last call for leaders here. If you appreciated some of these responses, something that you might want to consider is looking at where is your ancillary business coming from? Who are the parties that are involved? It's so easy that we just overlook a lot of these questions and the moments of stress and in the heat of the deal, but we really need to stay focused and get it done. In that moment, you just can't be proactive. So when you have moments to breathe, let's hope you do have moments to breathe, please think about the ways that you can be proactive, not just with your staff, but also within the process and evolve for the future. Hopefully this will help you future-proof your businesses. And these are issues that are only going to continue to grow within our industry. But if we can try to imagine what this could be and think about the unknown, I think we can all continue to evolve together. If you would like your own non-watered-down version of what you heard here from ChatGPT on our survey results, please go to thedesignpop.com podcast. And if you scroll down, you'll see where you can download the full survey. And if you have participated, thanks so much once again for paying attention and for letting your knowledge be shared. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love a rating or review from you or just reach out and say hi. It's one of the best ways you can support this podcast. I'm Alexandra Cephas. Thanks for listening. 